Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanna be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I wanna be loved by you, alone. I wanna be kissed by you, just you, nobody else but you. I wanna be kissed by you, Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that were so successful off-Broadway, they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is an icon a legend a twice past guest three times past guest maybe twice twice we did in the, we did that in the heights movie we did the annies did we do another one prom Talk we did we did prom three three time past guest this is her fourth time a nice quadruple <clears throat> danny tickton Coplick, aka mom hi mom hi babe how are you Great. It's so good to see you. It's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute. Yeah. yeah. For those of you who don't know, I do live with said Danny Tickton Koplik. We are roommates. It's a nice situation. Not permanent, of course, but we make do with the moment, you know? Yeah, we I'm do. Saying. We have fun. Yeah, we do have fun. Uh, Mama, what piece are we talking about today? We are talking about Torch Song Trilogy. Written by? Harvey Firestein. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your history with this show you were living in new york in the 80s and you were on the theater scene do you have any memory of when this play came out i don't i kind of all it was always sort of in the background and Mm -hmm. i assumed it was like a downtown kind of a thing but i don't believe i saw it at the time okay um and but you recall do you recall the rise of harvey firestein you're asking me to go back a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, like, I remember him, obviously, from, you know, the movies as a kid. He was in right. a lot of movies, uh, never as the lead, but Mrs. Doubtfire and then Death to Smoochie and things like that. And then Hairspray, I felt like, was a really big deal with him. And I was, and I didn't really make the connection of Harvey Firestein from the movies to Harvey Firestein and Hairspray. So I didn't realize that he was, like, a celebrity. But 
looking back at his career and research for this, it's an it, it's a weird kind of rise because it felt like in Hairspray that he was like this national celebrity and he is and yet isn't at the same time. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Well, a lot of his credits are quiet, right? Yeah. Because being a being a writer, you mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, writes writes a lot, writes a lot of stoof. Um, okay, so for those who don't know, Maman, what? So we went to the Lincoln Center Library to watch Torch Song Trilogy. We did. Where they filmed it at the Actors Playhouse before it transferred to Broadway because they wanted to capture Matthew Broderick's performance before he left the production. And I have some notes on that as well in regards to Harvey Firestein's memoir, I Was Better Last Night. Which I did read, not all of, but the section regarding Torch Song so I could get some dish on it. Uh, we went and we watched. 5,000 hours later, we left. What would you say the play is about? Hmm. Like, who's it about? What's the plot? Well, that's two different things. Yeah, so, what's so, it about and what's the plot are two different yes, things. Yes, no, so not, not, we'll get into themes as we discuss. But if someone were saying, oh, Torch Song Trilogy, I'm interested in that. What, what's it about? It is about a an out um, gay drag queen um, who kind of goes through life and uh, is more, <coughs> excuse me, um, is more sensitive than stereotypes might suggest because he has different relationships and um, he falls in love with a bisexual man. They break up because bisexual man is married to a woman. Getting married. Getting married to a woman. And so um, Arthur, Arthur is his name? Arnold. Arnold, excuse me. Arnold um, hooks up with a much younger man, very attractive, Mm -hmm. and makes him feel good. He doesn't love him the way he loved the other man. Ed, yes. Ed. But he comes to love him. Mm -hmm. And then there are collisions that happen Mm -hmm. along the way when all of them meet up. Um, And there's a lot of drama back and Mm -hmm. forth about are you really – who do you really love? Mm -hmm. Who do you love more? Which is your truer self, with Ed especially? Um, And and through it all, Arnold kind of stays true to himself. Mm-hmm. Other people change, and he he stays very true to himself. Yeah. So Arnold, <clears throat> which is the role that Harvey Firestein played and wrote for himself, he is you know the string that holds all three acts together because it's called Torch Song Trilogy because it is in three acts. Act one is called the International Stud. Act two is called Fugue in the Nursery, and three is Widows and Children First. And Act one takes place over the course of about five months. Act two is about six to seven months later. And then act three is five years later. And everything you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, One of the major reasons I brought you on to this podcast for this particular play, Mama, is because of act three. Because who shows up for act three? Mama. Yes, Arnold's Mama. Mrs. Beckhoff herself, played originally by Estelle Gettleman, who changed her name to... Estelle Getty. Sophia herself. Picture it. Sicily, 1920. What did you think of this play, watching it? Well, you know, it depends on what um, measure I use. If we go with the fidget meter, I didn't fidget at all over Mm. a quadrillion hours. Yeah. It was... In real time, four. Four hours. Yeah. And a long time to sit with headphones on, you know. But it was... um, 
very engaging, very thought-provoking, very heartfelt, um, lots of emotions all over the place. Very funny, too. And very funny. Yeah, but, I, you know, it's it's interesting how times have changed. You want to make sure you're laughing with, not at. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the thing about sitcoms i guess because a lot of the humor in torch song trilogy at least for the first two acts is a little more sit well i say act one and act three a little more sitcom-y right and part of that comes from a little bit of laughing at not in terms of looking down on them but you know a lot of humor situations come from characters either behaving badly or stupidly uh making bad decisions and then things happening because of it this is this has some of that, but a lot of the jokes, a lot of the laughter does come from intelligent jokes, wordplay and whatnot. Yeah, the most, the, the one that I've been reflecting on is the back room scene mm-hmm. where it is played for laughs. Yeah. Big laughs. And it is funny, but it's also extremely sad. So, you know, I guess that's yeah. the flip side of humor is the sadness. Yeah. Well, so that scene was the inspiration for the whole thing. So the way that Torch Song Trilogy came about was Harvey Firestein was <clears throat> kind of a jack-of-all-trades, making no money, trying to be a writer, a performer, a drag queen, a, doing scenic design, directing, all what have you, and had a relationship with the off, off-Broadway theater company La Mama and was sort of floundering, as many of us do in our 20s, and this was in the 1970s, and apparently there was a place called the trucks i don't know what the situation was but it was essentially outdoor anonymous sex similar to a bathhouse or a back room of a bar and harvey firestein had a had an anonymous hookup that it was very similar to that back room scene with arnold where it was very just pure physical and harvey firestein was so kind of felt so disconnected from it and also bored by it and tried to make it more humane so rather than make it intimate with you know kissing and whatnot he just kept on trying to make conversation with the dude who was for lack of a better term inside of him and it just wasn't working and he felt very sad so he walked to sheridan square you know and had all these thoughts in his head and just whipped out his notebook and started writing it all out as a monologue and he said you know this feels very real it feels very painful and he goes to la mama and meets up with one of his friends, and he says to her, I wrote this piece, uh, you know, tell me what you think. And he starts reading it out, and she starts laughing. Which, if you ever wrote something or are acting in something, and you want it to be sad, and they're laughing, it's like that line in Follies that uh, Carlotta says, it was such a sad song, but it kept getting laughs. So they tell me to go out there and play it sadder, and I did. I'm in Philadelphia, and I play it sad. 1,800 people fell apart. Uh it was that, and he was getting very upset about it until he finished it, and then she goes, Harvey, that's one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. That is so true. She wasn't laughing because it was bad. She thought it was great, but it played as comedy because it was so truthful, but not in a painful kind of way, which was a lesson he learned because he, right before he started writing this, he had written his own sort of, uh, it was like, it was like an adaptation of the opera Tosca for this opera house downtown that had just been refurbished to film Godfather Part Two, mm. And he, rather than do like an English uh, translation, 
he adapted it for downtown where there were drag queens and he was the lead and there were spoken dialogue and all this stuff and just bonkers and he said only real opera queens loved it everyone else was just baffled and he realized that you couldn't lecture an audience it had to be a conversation you had to let them in and what better way to let an audience in than humor that is really a great way to let an audience's guard down. It's why, you know, so many plays that we think of as super dramatic, they open with a, quite a few laughs because you got to get the audience at ease before you go in for the gut punch. I think maybe the only real, like, dark, serious piece I can think of that just starts sad and ends sad that people still love is Les Mis. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to yeah. say, Les Mis. Yeah, right. and Les Mis has so dark. Yeah, <clears throat> the Tenardiers are played for laughs for the most part, and they are very welcome. But yeah, Les Mis, do, there is no laughter in Les Mis until about, 40 minutes in yeah that was exactly where my head went was yeah. Les Mis and you know how much I love it but yeah same as yeah but Les Mis is the anomaly it's not the rule right and I think what helps with Les Mis is the music it's because it's so operatic in that way it, you, it carries the day in the end and so he adapts this monologue into uh, a scene which is the backroom scene with Arnold at the International Stud which was a real bar in New York City that had a backroom that's what it was famous for apparently the way the back room came about was it was supposed to be, you know, for showing midnight movies <laughs> and no one was paying attention to the movies. So the owners were like, well, we're not going to pay money for rentals. Just like do whatever you want. And that's what happened. And he did the international stud at a, a couple of one act festivals and was very successful with it. And then La Mama was looking for plays for their next season. And his roommate told him to, uh, expand international stud into a one act because of something that had just happened to Harvey Firestein in his life, which was he fell in love with a bisexual man, had the exact same situation that happens in the play with Ed, where, you know, it's great, it's four months, and then all of a sudden he starts to retreat. Oh, by the way, now I'm starting to date a woman, but I still want to see you. And back and forth and back and forth. And the first thing he writes is the phone call scene with Ed, where he, where Arnold says, uh, you know, I happen to be in love with you. That's got to give me some kind of right. If it doesn't give me the right to see you, at least I have the right to bitch about it. Yeah, it was a great line. It's a great line. And so he wrote that whole scene pretty much as it is now uh, with a couple of tweaks here and there. And then, you know, moved some stuff around with that and then added the Torch Song singer. And the way it became a trilogy was his roommate said to him, send this to the artistic director at La Mama, who he has a relationship with, and tell her it's a trilogy. Uh, it'll be cheap to do, and if you tell she she loves doing trilogies because apparently the mama had a big success with it, with a trilogy the year before, and if he tells her it's a trilogy, not only will it give it some prestige and give her something to look forward to, it guaranteed Harvey Firestein a slot for the next two years, and he would have a year to write each new act. How brilliant! Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> yeah, we should all try. We all we should all try that. And he expanded the international stone into this one act, and it went over very well. He then had to figure out fugue in the nursery uh is it called fugue in the, yeah fugue in the nursery and as i said came about out of necessity and there's something in fugue i don't know if you remember music is playing constantly throughout fugue when they're in the bed right so we have the torch singer in act one uh who's there for both scene transitions and then also just on theme because the whole point of the title of the trilogy is that arnold's life is sort of one big torch song mm-hmm. and Fugue in the Nursery came about with the musicians because, again, the artistic director of La Mama said, we've got these musicians that we have to use or we don't get to keep our government grant. So can you use them in any way? And Harvey Firestein was like, well, 
four characters. He's like, what's the next step here? Okay. Uh, six months later, Arnold's got this boy toy, this model, former hustler, and not in love with him yet. But, you know, the boy is in love with him, and it's the complications of all that. And I'll have a string, I'll have a string quartet play throughout, and each instrument is a different character. Huh. And that, and it worked. <clears throat> and then the way that the third act came about was because he said to himself, okay, I gotta, I gotta finish this fucker. I gotta get some way to make everything conclude. And these characters have to grow up. And originally what was going to happen was that it was going to be Ed, Allen, Arnold. Alan is the former Hustler model boyfriend. And Alan and Arnold were adopting this uh, street kid, David, who also was gay because uh, social services, right? Or child protective services Mm -hmm. basically assigned him to Arnold because they're like, we don't know what to do with him. He's gay. Maybe you can straighten him out or something, make him a little less awful. And that was going to be it. But he knew Estelle Getty through family and Estelle Getty basically was a late in life actress. She spent most of her life being a housewife and then she started working in bookkeeping and she always fancied herself an actress. And so she said to Harvey Firestein, you should put your mother in there. Write a part for me. I'll play your mother. So Harvey Firestein's like, yeah, sure. Arnold's mom's going to come in and like chaos will ensue. And then what happened was his roommate was cruising in the bushes and he and a bunch of gays got attacked by some thugs and his roommate survived but got bloodied up real bad and harvey firestein kept shouting him what you could have died you could have died you could have died and then he thought to himself well alan's gotta die then like he wanted to do something with that rage of what it of what he was feeling of what happened to his roommate and friend and he channeled that into alan being killed in the same way that his friend got jumped and having arnold grieve for him and that also solved the issue that he didn't really know what the third act was going to be about like thematically speaking and he realized oh arnold and his mom will connect and butt heads about being widows in very different ways uh in the same way and yet in different ways and that was sort of how that came about and then he uh he premiered that at la mama a year later and that really went really well here's what i was telling you before we recorded uh International Stud got transferred to an off-Broadway commercial run and flopped. Then Fugue for Nursery transferred for an off-Broadway commercial run and flopped. And some silly man said to Harvey Firestein, what if we did a commercial run of all three? And we do it uptown by Lincoln Center. And Harvey Firestein's like, I don't know. <laughs> the first two didn't do well. And this is four and a half hours. But they did. And it was very well received, but no one was coming. And they were going to close it two weeks early until there was a trifecta of glowing reviews from The Times, Rex Reed, and John Simon all in one weekend. Whoa. And, that, and they were in a small enough theater that that was enough to get people to come and make it a big enough success that they then moved it to the Actors Playhouse, where they were able to continue that success. And the producer was like, this is not enough. We would like to go to Broadway. And Harvey Firestein was like, I don't know. I'm not sure how much of a Broadway baby. My Harvey's good. It is good, but I don't want you to ruin your vocal cords, The way that he too. did, yeah. He claims that it's due to an overdeveloped second vocal fold or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Science. Uh, made worse by the by doing the show, and he had a vocal. In- so when we watched the video, mm. as I said, it's because they wanted to record it before Matthew Broderick left to uh, film a movie and do Brighton Beach memoirs. So we didn't get to go to Broadway with the show. And Lincoln Center wanted to record the cast with Matthew Broderick. And Harvey Firestein was still in the middle of fighting this vocal infection. And so 
he says in his memoir, he's like, I'm still vocally very, you know, rough. He's like, but it's still great. It's great to have Matthews perform preserved. And that's something you and I noted was like Harvey vocally was kind of struggling. And because of that, also his diction was kind of off because he was pushing so hard. And then I found a video of him later in the Broadway run when he came back towards the end of the Broadway run and his voice is much stronger and his diction is a lot better. Because yeah, um, I lost a lot of it. I figured I was just um, hard of hearing or something. But... I lost some stuff, okay, too. Good. Yeah, but again, it's four and a half hours. It was four and a half hours off-Broadway. I think they cut it, got it down to about four, maybe 350, because the producers were like, it'll be a fortune in overtime if we keep it the length it is. You've got to trim some stuff. And what he would do is, because Estelle Getty was such a stickler about her lines, he would every line of hers that got cut, he would then show her two of his that got cut. So she didn't feel like she was being slighted. Um, And they open on Broadway, and a year later, he wins the Tony for Actor and Play. It runs for three years. They make a movie version of it. They have three different national tours. And yet, you never saw it. It was in the background. You were too busy seeing Cats. That's a whole other story, which we won't go into now. We won't go into the cat story. (laughs) Um, Of the three acts, Mama, which one did you like the most? You know, it, it's hard to say like because they, they challenge you sort of in, in different ways. Mm. Um, I think probably it's a toss-up between the first and the third. Mm. Um, you know, I don't like a whole lot of mess in the second act. There's yeah. a whole lot of mess, of, of human mess, you yeah. know, and, um, and that's just – but that's probably the part where you learn the most. But still in all, I, I that kind of commotion, that kind of messiness isn't my favorite. So the other two were yeah. better for me. I like the second act because it gives Laurel, who is the woman that Ed marries uh, and leaves Arnold for, essentially. It gives her some humanity and some dignity as mm-hmm. opposed to just being a plot device in Acts 1 and 3. We right. get some context for her. I mean, she's a mess of a human being, as they all are. But... <laughs> She does get to speak her mind from time to time. Yes, but then sometimes you say, I can't believe that's okay with her. It is crazy the things that we all have put up with or will sometimes put up with in the name of what we think is love. And she thinks that she loves Ed. And and we learn from her. She finds out that Ed is bisexual once they're committed to each other. I don't think they've gotten married yet when she finds out. But, like, they are in their knee deep when he finally tells her oh by the way i'm bisexual and i used to have a male lover who i you know left for you and it's and it's important we know this because when we are told at the end of international stud that ed is dating a woman and then oh by the way you know he's going to continue to see her and wants to see arnold on the sly he hasn't told her that he's bisexual and he says to Arnold, I don't think it's very important. And Arnold's like, oh, no, of course not. To Arnold, your sexuality is very important because it's a part of who you are. It's a part of how you live your life. And it's part of how people see you. And the only way you can really be happy is if you're true to yourself. And that means embracing all of you. Arnold also has a very limited view on sexuality. And granted, it is 1982 taking place in the late 70s. Arnold's very binary when it comes to sexuality. You're gay, you're straight. I don't think he believes in bisexuality. Well, let me tell you the line that I really loved, and I'm going to paraphrase because I'm going to butcher it, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, something like, 
if you're gay and the only people who know you're gay are the ones you're gaying with, mm-hmm. that that's the closet. Yes. Ed, he says to Ed that he's that Ed is in the closet, and right. Ed says I'm not in the closet. And he says if the only people who know you're gay are the ones you're being gay with, you're in the that's the closet. Or he says something like, "Did your tongue get caught on the closet door or something?" <laughs> and again, he's not wrong in the general sense, but I I don't know. We don't get enough context about Ed's sexual escapades with women, and and the only bit we get about his love life with Laurel implies that Ar- Arnold is a major driving force for him being sexual with Laurel. Uh, he says to him at the end of act one, sometimes I have trouble finishing with her. When I do, I think of you. And then when they're, when and act, Arnold didn't want to hear that, he didn't want to hear that. No. Although he does leave the door open for him at the end of act one. And then act two, when we get to Fugue in the nursery, it opens with the first night in the country. So the way Fugue, the way that Fugue in the, nurse, the nursery is usually, or is it Fugue in a nursery? I don't know. It's originally it's set in a giant bed and everyone kind of moves all over in it. It's very theatrical, but it takes place <clears throat> upstate where Ed has a house and he and Laurel have been together now for about a year. And it opens with the first night there. Arnold is in his room with Alan and Ed is in his room with Laurel. Well, go back a second. Laurel thought it would be a good idea for the four of them to be together. Yes. Well, so originally she and Ed discussed it. Unclear if it was Ed's idea or Laurel's idea. Laurel's the one who called Arnold and Ed had no idea that Arnold was with somebody. And when Arnold told Laurel, Oh, I have someone in my life. Can I bring Alan? She said, sure. And Ed is not pleased. He does not like this. And it's for many reasons. The two headlines are, he still is very emotionally connected to Arnold, whether he wants to, admit it or not and there is jealousy there and then the other part of it is the side of himself that has committed to the heterosexual life with laurel is trying to find some way to close the arnold chapter Mm -hmm. and he in a very gross but relatable way he thought by having arnold come up alone and him sort of showing how happy he is with laurel even though he's not and we've seen cracks in that already he can sort of close the door on Arnold and be like, I'm done with that, you know, pathetic gay. I have this life now. But oh no, Arnold's there with someone younger and beautiful and very sexually active and who's so in love with Arnold that it's like sickening to see. And it fucks with Ed. And the when the act two opens, you know, Laurel's having the time of her life. Her opening line is, isn't this civilized? You know, oh, I, my... My partner's ex-lover and his boyfriend are joining us for a weekend in the country. And I'm like, and she goes, something like, something like Noel Coward wrote. Noel Coward wrote. I was like, yeah, sure. I think it's more like how Noel Coward lived, not how he wrote. And Ed ends up having sex with Laurel that night. And she knows it's because of Arnold. She says so. If this is Arnold's effect on you, let's invite him up every weekend. He goes, that's not because of Arnold. It's because I'm so into you. And do you remember what she says? What'd she say? Why'd you call me Arnold? Yep. She goes, is that why you call me Arnold? <laughs> Which always gets a laugh. And she's, whether she is being honest or not, she says, I don't mind. Right. That's what I'm saying. She yeah. put up with a, a, a lot. lot. Right. I think part of her, it could be that, it could be one of many ways. You could play it many ways. It could be this blind confidence that she has Ed, that they are together, that they're committed to each other, and there's nothing to worry about. It could be that by not addressing issues because 
what we learned in Act 1 is she apparently cries a lot. And then Ed had a talking to uh, her about it. And now the crying has stopped. And <clears throat> it sounds like all major issues that they have get sort of smothered. And it's just always pleasant all the time. So rather than acknowledge maybe pain of you just call me by your ex-male lover's name while making love to me, she laughs it off of, it's fine, I don't mind. I understand. I understand. Didn't you find, though, that he acted, because there's a lot about norms in this thing Mm -hmm. and and contravening norms and whatnot, but um, that Ed acted like a stereotypical macho male prick toward his wife and you know reading the newspaper when she was talking and bossing her around Mm -hmm. and all of these things it was such a stereotypical um hetero kind of way i just thought that was an interesting statement in the middle of all of this other yeah sexual charge i think that's probably on purpose that is Especially you have to remember the mind frame that he's in when Act 2 begins. Because when we first meet Ed, do you remember how we meet Ed in International Stud? He comes on to him in a, bo- in a bar. Yeah, he meets Arnold at a bar. Mm-hmm. So International Stud, the first two scenes are Arnold alone putting on drag and talking about his love life and you know his past loves with a uh, deaf man and, and all that other stuff. And then the second scene is Ed meeting Arnold and it's done as a monologue as well. And then the third scene is four months later. And Ed is... Ed has a lot of the qualities that we attribute masculinity to Mm -hmm. in that scene. But he's not overtly butch. He's not making a show of it. And in fact, he's very kind of loose and comfortable and nice and, and inquisitive. He asks Arnold about his life. He's not turned off about the drag stuff, which until, you know, honestly, six years ago was a major turnoff for a lot of gay men, especially people like Ed, who don't consider themselves queer and don't really desire to be a part of the community. He just goes to the international stud to get off. Usually he says, he says, I usually go to the back room, but not tonight. Here, we're in the front. Here you are. And, most likely was just trying to hook up with Arnold that night, but it blossomed into something else, which is something that he didn't want. He doesn't really want companionship from a man. He just wants sex. And I think with Laurel, he probably acts more masculine than he normally would to, in his mind, counteract the homosexual uh, impulses, indulgences. Uh, I think because there's so much inner homophobia and toxic masculinity in Ed, he can't allow himself to be emotionally vulnerable with the man. He just can only use them for a physical urge. Urge, that's really the word I want to use is urges. Mm -hmm. And commits himself to the heterosexual side. And it's possible that he could be bisexual and could have a happy life with Laurel if he was more willing to embrace the queer side of his bisexuality. But it's so just... Under lock and key. In a box. Yeah. In a box. Yeah. Which is why when Act Two begins, and first of all, he's pissed off because Arnold and Alan are there right. together, and then on top of that, the boxness of his queer side of his bisexuality, he's kind of lashing out by acting more like a gross man. Yeah, it was also crazy because there were a couple of times where. Arnold and Ed spent hours together in bed. I don't think they were necessarily having sex, but they were being very intimate 
in an emotional way. Yeah. And the two other partners are kind of like, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Ed and Arnold have the, the, so the second day they're in the country that afternoon, Alan and Laurel basically spend the afternoon together because Ed and Arnold, as you said, are in bed just talking. They're not having sex. They're literally just talking. And the way that it's staged with Harvey Firestein and Court Miller, I think is the name who, of the actor who played Alan, uh, uh, Ed. And they're, they're kind of spooning each other back and forth. And it's, it is very intimate and it's very caring, but it's not necessarily sexual. At least not on, the way Harvey Firestein plays Arnold in Act Two regarding Ed. He's not pining after Ed. He's very confident and uh, at ease with him, which is much different from the jitteriness that he was in Act One regarding Ed. And I think part of that is the confidence of having someone like Alan, who they all agree is objectively very attractive, mm-hmm. being so into Arnold mm-hmm. that it gives him. It's shallow to say, but it's honestly the truth. When someone you find so attractive finds you so attractive, is just so into you, it does a number for your self-esteem. And, like, all of a sudden you have a swagger about you and an ease about yourself that you didn't realize you were lacking until, like, this person who you're so obsessed with is obsessed with you back. Well, he also probably did a lot of work to uh, to to get over Ed in the beginning, you know, when, when they split and he, mm-hmm. did, and he chose chose uh laurel yeah, you know you don't have to do the air quotes he chose laurel yeah yeah it's but Ar- uh, arnold doesn't believe in therapy really which is so weird he mostly just talks he, t- he talks about how he talked the ears off of many friends getting over ed to the point that he actually lost some friends because he wouldn't shut up about it yeah well i think he is talk therapy even if yeah. he's talking to himself he's, yeah he's talking it through a lot um and i think that you know whatever defenses he may i, I was almost like proud of him for being so um, level-headed in the presence of this crazy setup yeah. and um, being able to keep that barrier, you know, the sexual barrier between him and Ed. Yeah. I would say Arnold is probably at his healthiest mentally and emotionally in Act 2. Yeah. He is so... He so wants love in Act 1 and looks for it in all the wrong places and is willing to accept any scrap of affection that he is just sort of begging around it's why immediately after he and ed break up he goes to the international stud with his friend murray who we never meet and does the back room situation and then we find out in act two that he keeps going to the back room and not because it's emotionally or sexually fulfilling he just kind of needs that connection the idea of being picked. He says, he says to Marie, he's like, what if I don't get picked? It's one thing to get rejected in a bar, but like in a place where the lights are off and literally everyone's just there to have sex, to not get picked as like, whatever. And then he gets treated like the piece of meat that you're there to be. And it's not enough, but he keeps going back like an addiction. But it does also in a weird way help his. Well, it fills a hole, you know, it fills a hole. And also it's, it's, it's sexual therapy in a way, you know, he's having, he is, Sorry to be vulgar, everyone. He's fucking Ed out of his system. Uh, the more times he has sex with randos, the less he'll feel like he's cheating on Ed. Mm-hmm. Which is that thing where, you know, when you break up with someone and you hook up with someone else for the first time, 
I, I also I guess it depends on how close in proximity we're talking about the timelines of the two mm-hmm. but it can feel in a weird way like you're cheating even if you're not with that person anymore especially if love is involved it's not just dating but you really loved the person and there was a vulnerability shown um but yeah arnold really kind of i don't say he relapses because he's still confident in himself and he's not really desperate for ed in act three he's desperate for his mother's approval but the the sense of self that he has in act three becomes sort of a double-edged sword because he demands everyone live up to his standards of being a whole person which is to be uncompromising all the time about who you are and what you're about and never let anyone make you feel small but that is not always on my opinion the healthiest way to live Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Because I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think it's hard. I think, you know, you try to maintain standards. We set these things up for ourselves to protect ourselves pretty much, right? And and you have those kinds of standards. Um, it is a difficult way to go through life. There's a, there's a medium there somewhere, a happy medium, where you allow for difference. You allow for error. You allow for malaprops. You allow for people to um, say the wrong pronoun. I mean, you have to have that allowance in there because people are human and we're all, you know, quintessentially flawed. And anyone who doesn't understand that is in for just a life of solitude, pretty much. Yeah, not maybe not pain, but loneliness for yeah, sure. Yeah. Isolation. There's that moment in Act two, in Act 3, which at this point, Ed and Laurel ha- were married for a few years and now are separated, about to be divorced. And Ed is crashing on Arnold's couch. Mm. And Ed is kind of broaching spends a lot of act three with Arnold broaching the subject of trying again. And when they talk about sort of Ed's past with Laurel and sort of how he treated Arnold over the years, he says to Arnold, you know, people make mistakes. And Arnold goes, oh, I got to write that down, which is funny. But also, you know, it sort of shows you Arnold's mentality about mistakes and, and human error, which is, Similar to kind of where we are with a lot of people now. I've said this before. I'll say it again. So many people in our society, and I I don't want to attribute this to everybody, but I will say from online culture, it definitely stems young. It's, it stems from the younger crowd, from Gen Z especially. There is a tendency to define people by the worst thing they've ever done. Mm. And of course, some worse things. 
are, you know, unforgivable. Ted Bundy's worst things. Yeah. Can't can't give him any grace. Because uh, intention has to do a lot of, a lot with it. Malice. You know, if, 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 if you intended to cause pain, if you intended to hurt someone or deprive somebody. But a lot of people, honestly, just are get getting themselves into messes don't under don't know how to find a way out or just f- figuring out as they go and fuck up and will hurt people not always intentionally and there is no better way to make an immediate enemy than by to by immediately categorizing said person by that thing they just did and defining them as that thing forever and that person will never get a chance to grow. That person will never get a chance to do better, to make amends, to right wrongs. If you just cast them aside because of their their uh, mistakes, even if it's to you. Well, Gen Z is going to have to let up a bit. I mean, the rest of the world, let's say in the workplace, there is a lot of accommodation. But they're not going to grow up in um, a bubble, right? So no? there has to be some maturity that sets in at some point. Yeah. But I want ask you what you think about this i was just reflecting on act three and um chapter three trilogy three whatever you want to call it and 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 to me because there was so much parental stuff in there and expectations about parental stuff and those relationships the 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 phrase that comes into my mind is unconditional love and it's kind of like we're all looking for that but because we're all flawed we can't really give unconditional love i think but i'm thinking you know um arnold and his mother the, the struggle that they have he meets he tries to meet her more than halfway and she still huffs out he she doesn't understand but we all think that well, i don't know if we all do but there is a fantasy that you're going to have unconditional love from children to parents and parents to children. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Arnold then is going to be adopting this young man, David, is another parental thing. Um, And I guess it starts out, that relationship starts out understanding the humanity of it. Which relationship? With David. Uh, Arnold's relationship with David, yes. Unconditional love. I think... We're all capable of it. We're not all capable of it all the time, even with parents and children. It's no, it's true. And and it's not, that's not a judgment. That And it's not, you know, as if every day is a choice to be unconditional or, or conditional. It's sometimes it's in the small things of, you know, <laughs> of appreciating something that you asked me to do or something like that, you know, or or vice versa, you know. And I think with Arnold's mother, what's tricky is that she does love him. She says so. And in her mind, his lifestyle is wrong. She does not hate him and she does not want him to be unhappy. But because she doesn't understand in her mind what he is doing is wrong and she wants to correct it. It would be the same. It's a similar way of anyone, you know, if their kids were on drugs in her mind, right? Of how do I get my kid off this path? And I don't know if I ever talked about it on the podcast. Do you remember the movie, The Family Stone? You'll have to remind me a little bit. Do I have to remind you? It was was a movie in the 2000s. I think we saw it at Tenafly Theater together. I hated it. They, They... 
promoted this big family comedy and then you go and Diane Keaton dies of cancer. And the premise was that Dermot Mulroney is bringing uptight Sarah Jessica Parker to meet his very like bohemian family. Craig T. Nelson's the dad, which irony of ironies that Craig right. T. Nelson's playing a bohemian dad. Right. Diane Keaton's the mom. Rachel McAdams is the sister. Right. Oh, Sarah's uh, is uh, uh, uptight. Yes. And... Clears her throat. <clears> throat> uh, Luke Wilson's a brother and they have a, they have a deaf gay brother and there's a scene and they all hate her like on site. And there's a scene at the dinner table where they're making a joke about how, Oh, Diane Keaton loves our deaf gay brother. I think she secretly wished we all were gay. And Sarah Jessica Parker goes, but you wouldn't wish that. Right. And I was like, <gasps> you big and her argument isn't that being gay is bad, but that as a parent, all you want is for your child to have the smoothest road possible in this world. And unfortunately, being gay adds a couple of speed bumps. Who are you talking to here? I know. We've talked about <laughs> When I came out, we had this discussion. And I came out quite young, similar to Arnold. And I remember being really upset when watching that movie because I knew what Sarah Jessica Parker was talking about. And I thought it was an important discussion to have. And everyone kept cutting her off and basically implying she was a bigot. And it'd be one thing if, like, the movie allowed sarah to make that argument they it for some reason the movie just like decides to cut it off there and not explore how she actually has a point but whatever but in the same way with arnold's mother it's that you know she it's not that her heart breaks for the pain her son now has to go through as a homosexual she her heart breaks for the pains that she thinks he's choosing to go through you know and arnold is so blinded by the fact that his mom thinks it's a choice and that she doesn't approve that he can't see the love that she has for him. All he can see is the lack of respect. And that is what does it in for him. And there's something to admire about that, but there's also a little bit of grace he has to have in order. He, I don't, you said that he meets her halfway. I don't think he does. Well, he tries to, and then they, they, uh, and then he comes sort of almost like begging back when she's leaving, you know, just yeah. when she's about to, yeah. Leave. He's come on, Mama. Please, Mama. Yeah. Mama. He has. He has. He. Tr- he's trying to show her the middle ground that they have, and does it in I think a very respectful way. And she blows up again because I don't think he fully understands the magnitude of how little she thinks of the homosexual lifestyle. It's played for laughs at first, you know, that she doesn't really ask about his life all that much, and which is also why he doesn't really tell her a lot about it. She didn't know how alan died but she did go to the funeral mm-hmm. and she ref- she's totally thrown when she finds out that arnold intends to adopt david she thinks that's like terrible there isn't an, n- a nice joke about this where she says at that age he's impressionable and you living your life this way is gonna make an impression do you remember what arnold says to her Mm-mm. he says ma david's gay and do you remember what she says no. but he's only been here six yeah, months that's funny yeah yeah they only really find a slight middle ground at the very end, as you said, right before she leaves. And it's about pain. I want to go back for a second because yeah. I, I don't think that when a parent rejects a gay child, that it's solely because they don't understand. I think there is a lot of... Um, ego invested in having your child become a certain way a certain thing that they think people judge them based on or the way certainly that generation was brought up is 
you know, your your kids get married, they have the white picket fence, they have children. Mm-hmm. That ends, not necessarily, but it it can end. And the prospect of that, um, you know, if there's some conversation about norms and what's normative, and you know, it's it's a different. It's a, it's a different construct, and only recently has a lot of space been made mm-hmm. for alternative family structures and like yeah. that, you know. So it's I think that there's a lot of her own. It was more about her than it was about him. Sure. Well, and children, you know, are often looked at as a reflection of the parents. When a child when a child is behaving badly, everyone goes, "Well, it's really just telling you about the parent, right?" <sighs> Did you ever listen to Dan Savage? Any of it, or read any of Dan Savage? No, I don't Do you know who he is? Yeah, I know. You know, I know yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's very. He's got his podcast, Savage Love, and I listened to a couple of episodes. And he talked about, you know, for the longest time, his mother didn't approve of his being mm-hmm. gay, and he wasn't allowed to bring boyfriends over, but his sister was. And he one night, uh, he shouted at his mom like while they were waiting for the train to take him back to New York, and he was like, "Let's say his sister's name was Lisa." And he was like, "Why is it you never?" He's like, he's like, you let Lisa's boyfriends come and like meet you. He's like, he's like, why are you object that I put dicks in my mouth, but not that Lisa puts dicks in hers? And she shouts, because the dicks that go into Lisa's mouth could eventually lead to a baby. Obviously, not that's not how babies are made, but you know what she means. She's like, you know, by her being sexual with men and, you know, trying to find the right partner will lead to a family and the heterosexual lifestyle. Right. There's no way that can happen with you. And also with a lot of heterosexual parents and heteronormative ideals first of all with america in general we are very hush hush about sex and it's gotten a lot better but it's still weird and i talked about this in the rent episode especially with like pop culture there's a difference between sex and sexiness Mm -hmm. we we market sexiness we don't actually market sex because sex is not all lacy thongs and Jesse J music and high heels or greased up uh, Old Spice men. Sex is wonderful. It's also weird. It's awkward sometimes. It can hurt. It can all this shit. Raw, raw things can go embarrassing. wrong. Embarrassing, hilarious. It's vi- and very vulnerable and very intimate. And that's not something that's very marketable. It's something which is stupid because something everyone who's ever had sex can relate to. Um. But all the things that happen with heterosexual couples happen because of sex. Like a baby, for example. I told you this story. A dear friend of mine, won't say name because in case uh, their parents listen, when they were getting married, their father sent their... You be careful. You're going to identify the person by the story. Well, no. The person who this is about... We'll know it's about them, okay. but I am not saying any other details okay. so that way no one knows. This person was getting married, and leading up to the wedding, this person's father sent their fiancé at the time, or sorry, hinted at, sent, hinted at sending their fiancé at the time a bassinet, baby bassinet, that you had to assemble yourself without having any uh, any images on the box or instructions so that when it was finally constructed, it wasn't until the final thing was done that they would see it was a bassinet. And this person's father said, don't you think that's good? Because then I can sort of say when it's done, I go, hey, do you get the get the idea? And it made me a little angry because... Just a little? Well, 
something that Arnold's mom says. You make it always about being gay. You throw your sexuality into my face. Everything's got to be about that. Why you got to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And I said to this person, this friend of mine, do you know what your father just implied? And I'm going to be vulgar with y'all in front of my mother because, first of all, I'm vulgar in front of this person all the time. And she's also heard the story. I said, your father is telling your future spouse, please fuck my child and ejaculate into them until it results in a pregnancy. That is fucked up to me. I don't understand why that is considered humorous, why that's considered allowed. You know? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And and th- th- my friend goes, well, I don't think they're, that he's thinking in those terms. I'm like, but that those are the terms. That is how a baby is made. The baby doesn't just magically come. That is what your father is telling your future spouse. And your and this person's father, lovely man. He and I get along super well. I have no qualms with him whatsoever. This is not him specific. This is the general concept of heterosexual family ideals and norms that no one likes to think about. They say that that homosexuals are flaunting our lifestyle and our sexuality everywhere. Heterosexual lifestyle and sexuality is flaunted everywhere all the time it's never said explicitly because everyone just knows i think it's a more complicated thing than what you're talking about it has to it's always more complicated well you know it's how how intrusive are parents into their kids lives and you know there's the old adage of like once you get married how many people in this bed because you start to replicate some of the patterns that your parents did yeah um so yeah the whole thing was just a little weird to me it's it's nobody's business but the couple no exactly well A wonderful thing I have learned in my old age is I have no qualms with getting advice from people I love and respect. People like you, people like daddy, uh, close friends, past loved ones. And the only thing is that I ask for it. If I don't ask for it, it's because I don't want it. And if, you don't want it or you don't want to hear it. There. No, 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 no. Oh, yes. No, 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 no. If there's one thing I pride myself on, Madre, it's that I am very perceptive and that I think from many different angles about many things, including my own life and situations. Uh, we're going to talk about my life and how it mirrors this play quite a bit to the point that my mother, as we were watching it, kept poking me through all of Act <laughs> 1 and giving me bug eyes. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am, with your tickle bitties, what do you want? <laughs> but so, people will give you their two cents when you don't ask for it. And it comes under the guise of, well, I love you and I want you to be happy. It's like, great. But if you, if I'm looking happy, why would you give me countering advice? Unless you think I'm in danger of something, right? And that's sort of the tricky thing with Arnold and his mother. Arnold is, you know, rather happy in Act 3. He's got one major hurdle he's got to go through, which will which is an ultimate thing that leads him and his mom, if not to a total reconciliation, to a bit of a truce at the end of the, of the play. But he's mostly happy. And his mother is offering perspective that he doesn't want because it's not really asked for. And she's not seeing the happiness that he has. All she sees is the sort of the... Is normalcy a word? 
normality. Norma- uh, 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 normalcy uh, people use yeah, for that. But the lack of normality to mm-hmm. his life is what she keeps on seeing. And that is always their point of contention. And what is normal? Exactly. Normal's not a real word, everybody. Yeah, I wrote a whole piece about normal. I don't think it exists. There's a musical called Next to Normal. There you go. Yay. We'll cover it at some point on this pod. <laughs> We're all over the place today. But, you know, what is normal? What is normal? You know, don't ask me because I don't believe in normal. And I think every time we think we're getting to normal, something just upsets us. We have to be more flexible and adaptive and and understand that it's it, normal is um, a deception. Yeah. And that when we try to aim for normal, we miss out on a lot of stuff and we're fooled because nothing exists in that complete steady state. Everything changes all yeah. the time. I think the only thing that really deserves some rigidness is manners and consideration for others. Yes, and neurosurgery. Those things require. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you're doing any kind of surgery. Yeah. Precision. Precision, precision and rules. Perfection and rules. And rules. Absolutely. Yes. Everything else, you know, there has to be some bend to because no one's the same. Right. Everyone is different from each other and not everyone feels the same about what's right for them and how they want to live their lives. Is If someone is just trying to be happy and it doesn't physically harm others i don't understand why there why there has to be sort of boundaries when has that ever worked it's never worked we see history keeps showing us it never works but there's sort of a simplicity to um i guess bigotry but it is a uh being well, yes, because it deals with stereotypes and it's very, you should pardon the expression, black and white. So it makes it easier for people yeah. to navigate the world rather than expansive. It's easier. It's not necess- It's not right, clearly. Yeah, but- it requires less brain power. Right. And, and they don't have to choose what to believe. Yeah. It's like, well, no, it's, it's this. And it's a, there's a simplicity to it and a stupidity to it, honestly. it's And it's what makes me kind of frustrated about it all and bigotry is not just conservative against liberal bigotry is everything it's it's any kind of basic categorization of someone else it's like what i was saying earlier about when we start defining people by the worst things that they've ever mm-hmm. done that's its own kind of bigotry because you're refusing to acknowledge the nuances of a human being and all the other things they are just the one thing that you don't like and it's upsetting. And but and Arnold is sort of if not bigoted, I've said this before, he's a little closed minded. He's very rigid about his views of sexuality and is very stern about what it is to be happy and to be free. And not everyone is on his level and he doesn't really give a lot of grace to people who don't who can't get to his level. It's similar, you know, when people say, Well, why do we have to, you know, learn about the past? It's not this way now. It's like, well, you gotta learn about it all you gotta you, you you have to understand that not everyone is where you're at and some people are further ahead some people are lagging behind and you have to kind of be encouraging to everyone you know and i feel like that's sort of a uh, a detriment of arnold's personality is that he's not that well you know it also could be a function of the times too where you sort of had to be strong in your in your conviction mm-hmm. um you know now I think there everything's a lot more fluid, except when you get into those political divisions. But mm. 
life has become more fluid. Families look very different. Even, you know, gender is more fluid and sexuality is more fluid. Everything is just more fluid and it never was. It was yeah. very, it was, it was pretty um, uh, bilateral in, in the way, certainly the way Arnold was thinking about it. And I guess it was his way of, of um, sorting the world, yeah. which is how these things yeah. Well, let me also be very clear it's very important to first of all remember the time in which Torch Song Trilogy came out because it was written a lot the majority of it was written in the late 70s and it premiered off-Broadway in 81 the full thing in 81 and then transferred to Broadway in 82 uh, just as AIDS was becoming an epidemic in uh, New York and America do you remember when we were watching I kind of looked over to you to find out when it was mm -hmm. um, written or performed because I was ready for Alan to have died of AIDS yeah which is uh well yes yeah, so when they say that Alan died when you look at it with 2022 goggles you go oh god it's AIDS because also once like 1984 rolled around any play about homosexuals had to had to yeah. address AIDS because yeah. you just had to Right. Uh, same thing with, you know, any any sh work about New York City that takes place in the real world, basically from like 2020 onwards, has to address COVID in some way. Because it just, it was such a major, and it still remains part of our life. But yeah, no, it's it, because of when it was written, it was, it's, the play is technically pre-AIDS and remains so. And that's also why sort of the backroom stuff and the international stud is done with flippancy because it's pre-AIDS. The irony being that when the play premiered and flourished in America, it was as AIDS was ravaging the queer community. Do you think Harvey Firestein's perspective has shifted since then? On? On whatever he was feeling conviction about. I mean, Arnold was his, his alter ego. I'm not entirely sure that Arnold reflects everything that Harvey feels. Mm. Because, first of all, that's the thing is, everything that I've said about Arnold that I think are quote-unquote flaws about him is what makes him human. It's what makes him a good character. He's not uh, perfect. He's not saintly. He's very smart. He's very funny. And he uses it as a defense mechanism, which is its own kind of uh, humane rough spot. But he's also judgmental, and he can be very close-minded himself and uh, a little holier than now. And that's what makes him a compelling character. If he were perfect, it'd be a boring four hours. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. I think that the stuff that Harvey shares with Arnold is his history, his relationship history as well, and then the sense of humor. Uh, Harvey Firestein has said that the character of the mother is not based off of his own mother. Literally, it's more based off of his grandmother, I think a little bit of his father. And the story he talks about in the memoir is, so his father died before he started writing Torch Song Trilogy, he was doing some play in Boston when he got the news that his dad died. And in a lot of ways, he said that was very freeing to him as, an, as a playwright because he didn't have to worry about his dad seeing certain things. For example, like an international stud, him miming, getting you know fucked up the ass. And he talks about you know going down to see his mom with his brother for the funeral. And he says, Mama, you know, it's crazy. You told me that daddy died, and I swear that night in the theater, I saw him in the audience, and without missing a beat, his mom goes, Don't be ridiculous, Harvey. If your father died and was going to visit anyone, wouldn't it be me? Just like, not, no time for fools. The brashness is her. But she never, she came to see the play a lot, 
and would bring friends a lot. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but she never... And she he's, she came to each act when they would premiere at La Mama, and she liked the last one the most. And then when it all came together, she liked it a great deal, and she was very proud, you know, when it moved to Broadway and won the Tony. Um, you, asked, you asked me earlier before we recorded, you know, if Harvey did the whole run of the show. He did not. He also didn't do matinees when he was in the show. He was in and out. And for a while, you think, you know, it must be difficult to cast that part because it's so tied to him. And, you know, part of the marketing of it was he was the playwright. He was the actor. He was on all the late night shows. But the show was successful with a lot of other different actors. And in fact, when it did transfer to Broadway, Walter Kerr of the Times did not like Harvey. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, he had not seen it off Broadway, but, he, but it was one of those things where everyone in the theater industry knew about it, had heard about it. It was this big, bold theater piece about a queer character and what made it so different at the time was leading up to torch song trilogy most pieces with gay characters the gay characters suffered boys in the band even paul and you know Corsine, either they were martyrs of pain or they were self-hating and torch song was really the first major work about a queer person that at least made it to broadway where it was the main character was okay with his sexuality it was okay everything else was the problem but Walter Kerr wrote in his review, he's like, something must have gotten lost in the transfer here, because all I heard were raves about this Firestein dude. He's like, and the play is funny. He's like, but it's not, I don't think it's terribly deep. He goes, I don't think Firestein's much of an actor. Uh, he's like, he does a lot of ticks. So it's interesting to think about that. But regarding him and Arnold, uh, yeah, I don't think there's much about him. Um, but you, sorry, you said something, and I cut you off earlier, about uh, you and Daddy as parents, a different generation, you said. Oh, I think that was, uh, I was saying that, you know, we saw you in the, the thing that upset us was nothing about any of this. Um, but I know, so I also think that if parents are surprised when their kid comes out, they haven't been paying attention. Mm-hmm. I do feel that. But, uh, you know, maybe that's too broad a statement, but I, I think that if you're really paying attention. Yeah. Well, it's not just in the stereotypical tropes much as our no. family loves to make those jokes at thanksgiving yeah. it's it's you know it's it's in a lot of stuff it's in it's in how they react to others and sort of i don't know there's a lot to consider when you're watching your child right and i think as a parent you want to be aware of everything and open to anything that your child right. might be going through right or right. might tell you i guess what i was referring to is when you were in a show at stage door where it was called Bat Boy. And it, and who was I? You were Bat Boy mm-hmm. with the strangest ears I've ever seen. Everyone take a shot. I did not bring it up. My mama brought up Stage Door Matter this time. That's right. That's right. And I'm a stage mother from, from way back. But mm-hmm. um, seeing you in a cage was far worse than than anything else. I mean, it, yeah, we're it good. was... It was um, quite upsetting and i think dad might have cried when he saw you in the cage it upset boo boo that i was in the cage he and uh it was the summer after i did seymour and little shop and junior year at emerson i did man of la mancha and i was sancho panza where i never thought that my character died was going off to die from the inquisition but boo boo thought i might and so when i did she loves me senior year and i said what did you think he said well you lived till the end of this one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he said seeing your child in a cage was no good, and then he also said, you know, seeing your child get stabbed at the end of a play is not great. And Grandma apparently didn't like that boy either because I didn't speak English for the first two thirds of Act One. Mm. I kept going, 
And she's like, when's he going to talk words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry. Is me being the title role of a premiere stage door musical not good enough for my family? But honey, you didn't speak for the first two and a half years of your life either. Well, so. <laughs> the timeline of that changes based on who you talk to. There's a reason why Laura Coplick, my sister, will never be on this podcast. Because according to her, I didn't talk till I was 15. And, <laughs> and I was using Easy Bake Ovens every day until college. <laughs> as she would tell it. That's the beauty of family. <laughs> Next. Thank you. Next. So, what's something that's on your mind with this play that you would like to talk about? Because I've been, I've been taking the wheel here. Um, I guess it's like it, it, it. You probably need to see it, sit through it for you know almost four hours more than once because I'm sure there's a lot that I missed. And you know when you sit through something. And that's that's engrossing like this was you're following narrative as opposed to necessarily thinking through larger themes yeah. and in retrospect you start to pull up those those themes so um i mean we can talk themes if you like or um you know i just i was just so hurt by the scenes with the mother it just it hurt me like a, a, a stake in my heart yeah you know that someone could reject their child that way it was uh, even though they came to some sort of rapprochement but it, yeah. re- it meant that they had to separate um that is just like a fate worse well, than death for me what's interesting is that she you I mean, it's a combination of hearing what you want to hear and all this stuff because the, the second they have two really big fights and in the second one, he says to her, I want your, res- I love you, but I want your respect. And if you can't respect me, I have no time for anyone in this house who doesn't respect me. And what he's saying is, please respect me. What she hears is get out of my house. Right. Because she doesn't respect him. And rather than try to work at respecting him so she can be there, her mind is going, I'm loving you how how I can, considering all the things about you I don't like and don't respect. Why do you keep pushing buttons? Like it, like let's just be pleasant about it. And there's again, that's sort of like where the bending and the give and the taking and meeting in the middle is of you know understanding there is only so far she can go. Especially like in one, I know it's like they've had this relationship for years, but in this conversation, like there's only so far you can go in an afternoon with your mother who has apparently been this way for years. And she's even said towards the end, she goes, I'm too old. I can't change. Or at least not, not the way that you want me to, not as Mm. much as you want me to. Uh, But I mean, I think their final scene is so beautiful because, you know, his father is, had passed a few years prior and the, and what ends up being their first major blow up that brings them back together is when he talks about you know i was sick of widowing after alan you know what i mean and she goes you have the audacity to compare what you have with alan like i was with your father for 35 years i bore him two kids we had a life you know all this stuff what would you know and then arnold kind of throws it right back at her and in the final scene before she goes you know they they call a bit of a truce by him just admitting to her how much pain he's in. Mm-hmm. And despite how smart he is, how grown up he is, sometimes you need your mama. And he just wanted her to know, like, mom, I'm in pain. I miss him so much. And was just, it's a time where someone's actually asking for advice. 
That's a moment he's asking for advice. And she gives it. And do you remember what her advice is? Mm-mm. The interesting thing is uh, Estelle Getty didn't like this speech when they rehearsed it. She thought it was untrue. And then they do the first performance. And she says it's so flat because she doesn't believe in it. And then it ends up working because it's the character kind of just not being saccharine, just sort of saying as it is. And the mm-hmm. audience went ballistic. And after that night, she was like, I always told Javi that's, that yeah. that monologue was genius. But uh, what she says to him is, you know, that pain doesn't go away. You learn to live with it. And eventually it won't define you anymore. And it won't overwhelm you. But you're never going to, it's never going to go away. She goes, and that's good. Because the pain is you always remembering them. And you don't want to forget him, do you? He says, no. She goes, great. So there you go. That's pretty profound. Yeah. And 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 she doesn't say it in this like beautiful Oscar Wilde way. She says it very matter of fact. It actually was very respectful to say it the way she said it. You yeah. know, it was almost like she was talking to a peer the way she said that. Yeah. The, they, the way that the director told her, he said, don't say this to someone like it's your friend. Don't even say it to someone like it's your child. It's someone you met on the street. That's and that's sort of the lack of emotion she puts behind it, which is also it really makes it more moving because yeah. you know she means it. Yeah. She's not saying it's a bullshit him. She's not saying it to call the truth. It's the truth. It's just the truth for her, and she's giving part of her truth to her child in a moment of need. And in a way, she's sort of acknowledging the relationship at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And then she leaves. Yeah. But but I don't think she leaves for good. I think. She leaves before it can get bad again. Mm-hmm. That is, at least from the video we watched with Estelle Getty, the way she leaves, it does not come across on her face. No, it was gentle. It wasn't a door slam. It was yeah. a, it was a slinking out, yes. kind of quietly, Be- while his back was turned. Yes, because he tells a story to David about during his time with Alan. Alan called into a radio program to do a song dedication, and they read the name wrong. <laughs> right. And so David does it at the end of the play for Arnold and uh, Arnold hears it on the radio and goes to the radio to turn it up and starts uh, telling his mom about it with his back turned while she sneaks out. And he runs, he tries to run after her, but he's too late and he's a little sad, but then he sees the tin box of cookies that she made for him and he sits on the couch couch and he eats it not only that he embraces the tin yeah because he it's him i think it's him finally understanding that his mom does love him in her way and he needs to if he's going to get her to change in any way he has to accept that fact first that she loves him in her way Mm -hmm. and that while she may not be able to get to where he needs her to be he can maybe inch her a little closer over time if he just gives her the grace that he is going to eventually give Ed as Ed's trying to kind of re- right. rekindle that relationship. So he's actually derived um, uh, comfort from her twice. Mm-hmm. Once saying about the the speech that Mama yes, yeah. the pain speech, and then also just sort of with with the cookies, right? Yeah, and it's important as well because that that vulnerability that he's embracing again is coming at, again at the time where Ed is trying to maybe broach the idea of trying a relationship again with David really instigating it. And Ed keeps getting sort of defeated. Arnold keeps turning him down. And David says to Ed, like, Arnold never says yes immediately. He always, he, right. he comes to it later. Uh, but you have to kind of 
wait and you have to keep at it if it's really what you want. And when Arnold's mom and he talk about Ed for a bit towards the end, you know, she says, well, do you love Ed? And there's sort of a moment and Arnold, you can just tell that Arnold is thinking about the last six years yeah. and everything that Ed has put him through. But the bottom line is that he does still love him. Uh, the love has changed over time, but he still loves him. And it's probably why they're still in each other's lives. Because Harvey Firestein talked about this in the in his memoir. He was like, he says, exes can be friendly, but you can't ever really be friends with an ex, with a true ex, with someone who you loved, with mm-hmm. someone who you were that vulnerable with. Because you have altered each other's emotional DNA to the extent that you can't ever go to a place of camaraderie. Do you believe that? I don't know. But I think, but he does. And I think that's important to think about when you look at the play of the Arnold and Ed of it all. Because if Arnold didn't still love Ed in some way, was not still in love with him in some way, I don't think that Ed would have been in his life all this time, even when Ed, even when Arnold and Alan stay together. And Alan and Ed, by the way, hook up in that weekend in the country and fugue in the nursery. And when Ed marries Laurel. And then when Ed and Laurel break up, like, I don't think Arnold would have been there all that time if there wasn't still a little bit of a romantic love on that end, you know? Yeah, it could be. Um, yeah. I said, and I I don't know if I believe that, uh, believe that personally for me in my life. I'm just saying from Harvey Firestein's perspective on relationships, that is where I think some of that subtext is coming from. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My, my problem with the Arnold and Ed thing at the end is, after all of that, can he trust Ed again? Well, I don't know. But you have to sometimes take a risk, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Do we want to talk about Bub a little bit? You can. It's not for me to talk about, but... <laughs> that shit-eating grin you just gave me was all I needed, was all I needed to hear. Or see, I should suppose. Uh, so I guess we could say that there's a lot in Arnold's story with Ed that mirrors my own. Would would we? Yes. Would we, we say? Would. We yeah. Would. We would. Life is messy, kids, and you think. Hopefully, minus the back room stuff, but that's just a mother talking. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Thanks, Estelle. No, so I've never, I've never been in a back room. Please don't tell me. I don't need to hear I don't, more. La la la. I'm saying I've never been to one. Okay. Good. I accidentally walked through one in Fire Island, but I didn't realize that's what it was because it was a curtain. I was coming from the outside deck to come back in. And didn't realize that's what I was walking into. Luckily, no one was in there yet. But oh I <laughs> I was told while I was walking through that that's what that was. And I went, great. I know where I'm not going back to. Not that I 
disapprove of it. It's just not my style. Fine. Um, as I said, for me personally in my life, sex is a more intimate thing, and I don't want an audience. That's right. uh, why I'll never be able to do an OnlyFans. But do you know OnlyFans? And you never will. But so, uh, there is a gentleman in my life, still technically in my life, although in what context he and I, neither one of us knows. Do you really want to do this confessional? It's not a full confessional, but okay. I'm talking, I'm giving some basic information okay. to talk about this connection. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what Arnold and Ed go through, emotionally speaking, this person and I have gone through as well. And the few people in my life who know the full story, you included, there has been a lot of discussion about trust and about why I have still remained in contact with this person as they go through this time in their confused life, as they have hurt me. And the truth is that it is a weird kind of unconditional love where eventually the pain hurts less. You grow from the scars and you end up just seeing someone you care about really struggling. And it hurts to see them struggle and you want to help. That's love if it hurts to see them struggle. Yeah. That's how you know it's fucking real. But I bring up this story, A, because when International Stud was happening, the looks I was getting from you the entire time was just like, hmm. I completely forgot about the Ed plotline. Actually, I wanted to make sure you were okay. That was it not the thing. It wasn't face. an elbow thing. I wanted to make sure you were okay. Was I okay? You seemed to be. It didn't seem to like register. <laughs> I was upset. I while it was happening, my brain just went, "Oh right, that is right." You were thinking about the play. You weren't yeah. thinking. Yeah, about- but I was also like, "Oh right, that does happen." And I, I made the connection pretty early on. I just forgot that plotline with Ed was the thing. I remember Ed married a woman i forgot about the bisexual stuff i it's all mm. very i will say again and i brought you on for this episode because of act three i wasn't even thinking about act one or act two but again with the arnold stuff and with me and with people who hurt you and people you love you have to give a little bend because there is so much more than just being wronged you know and Maybe that's weakness on my part. I don't know. All I can say is I get no joy out of being a victim. And I get no joy out of having everyone feel sorry for me for being wrong. I want to move on from that. And if there is still joy from that person in my life, and if and if it's someone I care about and they are, again, as I said, if they are struggling, it's not something I'm happy to see. Uh, and as I said earlier, intention is everything. If they don't intentionally hurt you, if, if the hurt comes from their own messiness. First of all, I want to just clear something up. Yes. I don't think anybody pities you. I think people want to protect you from possible further hurt. Sure. Which is absolutely understandable. Absolutely understandable. But... You're a strong person. Nobody feels sorry for you. They're happy that you found that kind of a relationship. They're just very distrustful, speaking for myself, that it's going to come out as you hope. And, okay. But we've also discussed that. There is no 
hope about a future on my end. There are fantasies because it's it would be absolutely I would be lying if I said they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I had to. This is where I talk about my multiple perspectives. This is where my hyperactive brain really is wonderful, Mama. This is your superpower. Woo! The number, the number of times I ask myself a million different questions about my actions and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I have to really ask myself, what is going on here? I don't know if you remember this. Speaking of my bitch sister, who I love very dearly, when we had dinner with her and Nanny, your mother, about a year and a half ago, Mm. maybe two years ago, and I made a comment about sometimes feeling like I was being treated like a child by her and a friend sometimes when they call me Matman. Oh, right. And she was like, you know, she was a little into it, and she kind of just made a very begrudging comment. If you don't want to be treated like a kid, don't live with your mom at, you know, 30. And there was a beat, and I just said to her very politely, there's nothing you can say about me that I haven't thought 10 times before I get out of bed. I know everything that you're thinking because I've thought it myself. I think all of them, the positives and the negatives in the middles. And the same thing goes with this situation, which is I'd be lying if I said there weren't fantasies, but I did ask myself, I ask myself every day, am I still in contact with this person because I have hope that there's a future? Am I doing this because I just care about them? Am I doing this because there's just an immediate gratification of speaking to them? All three are true. And I had to determine what was the driving factor. Mm -hmm. And through my own crazy, I was able to firmly understand that my care for them was number one. My immediate gratification of speaking to them was number two. And my fantasies were number three. And that made me feel okay mm-hmm. because not having the fantasies would make me a computer. Right. But they're not at the forefront. They're not what's driving anything. And I allow myself to have them only because I can't not have them. But I do not in any way have an expectation about any of them mm-hmm. in any way. In fact, anytime I get... If I feel like I'm trying to get a little too carried away with a fantasy, I have a couple of key phrases that I'm not going to tell you or my listeners that I fully blurred inside my head to not shut them out, but to calm them down. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, just, you know, enough of the go-go juice, honey boo-boo. Here's this cutting remark that you know is true. So you, you're you still allowed to live, but you don't have your kneecaps anymore. Well said. Well said. Thank you. I was raised by two smart cookies. Yeah, you were. Yeah. Yeah. Just like my mom, I'm a tiggle bitty whore. Yes, but you, <laughs> you're also amazing because you're so self-taught about so many things. This, of course, but life and people. And, you know, you have great keen powers of observation, but the way you put it together is, you know, People can be in therapy for 50 years and not get to where you are. But a lot of it comes, honestly, with talks with you. Talk it comes from talks with you. Because you do ask a lot of questions and you make irritating a lot of Irritating questions. No. No. They're irritating at 8 a.m. They're not ir- irritating in general. But they, the questions you have are absolutely very fair. And I never get frustrated with you in fact i think i've told you many times and you asked them i said you know i've i've asked those same questions to myself uh and when you ask them it just reinforces to me that they were the right questions to be asking myself Mm -hmm. and it's what makes me more confident about 
my mental state about all of this because if you're asking me and I can give you the same answers confidently and I'm not questioning anymore. I'm like, no, that it's like, I've, I've thought about it. I've been asked again and I stand by it. I, I think, think this is the ground I'm standing on. And of course it always can change. I, we've talked about this many times with my mental state after being with someone or not being with someone of, you know, whereas there was that, there were those wonderful two years where I thought I wasn't a relationship person. And in those two years I wasn't, but I also told you I'm a human being and I'm a grown up, and I reserve the right to change my mind as I change. And that did, it's what happened. I changed and I am a relationship person now, unfortunately. No, I think it's wonderful. I was worried before, you know. I would love nothing more than to just walk around with my Paddington bear and tell everyone to fuck off. But unfortunately... No, no, no. You're way too young for that. I'm there now. But, you know, you, yeah. you know, I, uh, it's, uh, relationships are tough, but you don't... You, there's so much that's rewarding about them that, yeah. you know, you have to sort of risk a little bit. It's about having someone in your corner. I yeah. find. So so how does that then relate to Torch Song and having someone in your corner? Well, that's what Arnold wants is someone in his corner. And by act three, he does have at least two people he there. Does. And then, of course, offstage Murray. Murray's always been in his corner. Murray's the one who helps him test the phone when he's going through his Ed bullshit in act one. And Murray's there in the back room with him when he's getting over Ed. But he has people in his corner. He's not it's funny because he's gone from needy to not needy. Yeah. You know, it's it's a different kind of neediness, maybe. But he's got you, pain will do that to you. It grows you up pretty fast. Absolutely, that kind of devastating loss really changes. That, so much of life that seems so important, it just it just shifts all of a sudden when you really get a kind of heartbreak that is indescribable to so many and people will everybody goes through loss but how they go how that loss comes to them is very different for a lot of people and it's not just that arnold lost alan it's how he lost alan mm -hmm. it's how it wasn't health it wasn't it was violent it was violent it was a twist of fate and it was violent and it was awful and it should never have happened and it came from uh, bigotry and they were starting and they had had a wonderful life that they were just going to expand upon there was gonna, there was more to come and they got cut short isn't the sort of um subplot there that alan was in the bushes with other people yeah and oh okay i just didn't know that there i wasn't aware that there a relationship allowed for that i mean we don't know what their relationship allowed for we find out in fugue in the nursery that arnold is still going to the back rooms even mm. though he's technically with alan yeah. alan sleeps with ed fair enough uh and it's possible that they've kept on with a open relationship uh every relationship is different and especially in the queer community what determines monogamy is up to yeah. every couple so they might have had their things i don't know uh but yeah that is the indication is that alan had been in the bushes and he and a couple of gay men were leaving and they got jumped and the rest of them were able to escape and Alan had tripped and did not was not so lucky uh which is devastating but yeah that's I mean guys so how my situation relates to Torch Song first of all just in the literal there is so much plot yes. there's so much plot that's the just parallel <laughs> 1000% uh and then just some of the conversations about being true to who you are what ed the character of ed is interesting to me 
and I watching it and reading it, I think Harvey gives him a lot more humanity than I think a lot of other hurt writers would have in their situation. Because Ed's whole dilemma is what he wants versus what or sorry, what what he needs versus what he wants, I, sh- I guess I should say. What he wants is quote-unquote normalcy, whatever that is. He wants a life. He wants stability. And in 1978-79, he doesn't think he can get that from a queer relationship. Right. Here's Arnold willing to be his partner, his lover, his friend. And Arnold has his own hang-ups. You know, Arnold is very needy. Arnold is very vulnerable but arnold is dedicated and he's there talk to me yeah he's talk to me yeah and ed's like i'll just get angry he's like then get angry but talk to me and ed ends up making a bad decision with laurel and laurel's not a bad is not a bad person she could be a good partner to someone she keeps on choosing emotionally unavailable men and we find out in act two that she's actually had a history of dating bisexual men or gay men uh, she claims she never knew until they told her later on. There's got to... So much of it is just bad luck. But when it becomes a pattern, you got to ask yourself, like, are there traits that you are attracted to that only come from men who are not emotionally or sexually available to you? But Ed, rather than doing introspection and asking himself, especially when he cheats on Laurel with Alan in that weekend, because... I thought he was cheating on Arnold, actually. I didn't think about him as, as well, cheating well, on Laurel. Yeah. Well, he I mean, he did it for many reasons. I don't think I any of them were connected. And, and, and none of them were connected to Laurel, but it was cheating on Laurel. And I don't think he thought it that way. I yeah. thought he was hurting Arnold. Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, but afterwards, you know, he confesses to her. Right. But again, we talked about this earlier with their whole situation. She was like, it's fine. It's fine. It's funny. It's fine. I didn't, she says to Arnold, I didn't know which one of us to comfort. Uh, you know, she makes her bed as well, a very large bed, but Ed makes his decision based off of what he thinks that he wants and what he really needs is what he can get from Arnold. They have the possibility all along of a very beautiful partnership, but Ed just could not bring himself to do it and instead went with what he knew. Conventional, very conventional. Yeah, very conventional. And by act three, because of the life that Ed has now lived... And recognizing that marrying Laurel was a mistake and, you know, he can still get the conventional things that he wants out of being with her if he goes back to her. But recognizing that there's so much of life you can experience anew just by being happy, Mm -hmm. you know, even if it's not all the physical things, the big ticket things you think you want, just by being in a place of ease and comfort. Not complacency, but just sort of naturally in your own skin, which he talks about being in in that third act, you know, playing house with Arnold and David, Mm -hmm. cooking, terrible food, but cooking, Mm -hmm. and being a contributor to the household. He's very happy. And I think he realizes for the first time that he could, he has the potential to truly be happy, you know? And some people don't get that experience and some people get a taste of it and they still go with what they know and they decide to make a life for themselves and then some people stick with conventionality and come out at age 60 there are men in the gay chorus with me who didn't come out until a few years ago you know had had a wife and kids yeah yeah and 
I don't think they regret having the children, but they regret the pain that they caused themselves and the people they love and not having the courage sooner to just be true to who they were. Yeah, I coached someone like that too. And one of the reasons why he didn't leave was because he was a man of color and he said he didn't want to have another fatherless, you know, stereotypical black family where the father went off and did something else. So he stuck with it for a long time. But eventually, you know, there are all kinds of ways that you can um, accidentally get discovered, accidentally yeah. on purpose get discovered. So, yeah. You know, it's hard. It's it's a lot to bear, I yeah. think, when you're not living and you're in your the skin that's most comfortable. And and again, the bisexuality of Ed is something to explore and how bisexual he really is is up for debate and I'm not yeah. sure what Harvey Firestein feels. There's what Arnold feels, which is that he thinks that Ed is just gay which I, I'm not sure if I agree with. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Ed could be bisexual. He could be a gay man who has trained himself to be with women. Mm-hmm. But because he doesn't seem to enjoy sex with women from what we understand. And there's that scene with Arnold at the end of Act 1 where he's like, sex with you, I don't think it was as pleasurable for me as it was for you. And you're like, what does that mean? And you find out that it was actually so pleasurable for Ed that he would often lose his mind. Yes, yes. And, and, and that felt wrong to him sometimes. Yeah, he's like, he goes, it's not what I want. Ed wants to always be in control of himself and he wants to be yeah. composed and, and you know, know what's coming next. And losing control is not up his alley, so to speak. But thank you for laughing at that one. But you know what I mean. It's That was an eye roll and a laugh at the same time. <laughs> whatever, whatever. But, you know, we see that with people all the time, with people, with men that you coached, with, with Bub. And, you know, it's where I agree with Arnold is sort of, you know, you got the one life. And why waste it being polite? Um, being kind and polite are very different things. Manners are very different. There, There is so much you can experience by just being happy. And you aren't going to make someone else happy if you are oppressing yourself. That is very true. I do think, though, that of everybody in the cast, no, that's not true, probably Alan was the most, but Arnold is the clearest mm. about who he is. I think he's just absolutely the clearest. He knows his identity. What he does with it is something else and who he attracts, but I think that he is just very clear yeah. about who he is. Yeah, I would say Alan is very clear about who he is, he is as well. The, but the, it's one-dimensional, yeah. whereas well, Arnold and, is yeah. way more. Well, we get more time with Arnold for sure. Yeah, the tragedy of Alan is that Alan wants love as much as anyone else, right. and he's sort of always doomed to be lusted after. We find out you know, he shows up to New York in the 70s, 14 years old, beautiful, with blonde hair and blue eyes, and basically becomes a hustler overnight. Uh, apparently a, becomes a high-class hustler within like a week, making a lot of money, and then turning that into modeling gigs. But he said, you know, it still sucks sometimes to be on a photo shoot and the photographer goes for your crotch. And, like, you let them because then you get to be on the right. cover of Vogue at Milan. And then he goes upstate with Arnold and Ed goes for his crotch. He's like, God damn it. Yeah, it's terrible to be objectified. Yeah. Right? It, well, yeah. It's it it's it's not great i will say even there's this sort of feeling that people who are considered objectively attractive are sort of like statues works of art right and then mm. we objectify them because you know they're not 
They're not real. They don't have real emotions because mm-hmm. look how beautiful they are. I'm just a lonely muggle. What is? What does it matter if I ogle them or, or right. touch them a little bit? And it's like, no, they're still a person who had a childhood and they, you know, have things to do. You know, uh, I don't know. Who's like a very beautiful man to, that's living right now that, to you? Who's a very beautiful man? Oh, God, it's been a long time. Since, well, Tom Cruise is still beautiful. Sure. Okay, you know what? Um, you pick one then. Well, someone who's very much lusted after on social media these days. Kit Connor, the redheaded lead of Heartstopper, which I still have to make you watch. Um, he, I mean, he, first of all, he's 19. He just had a whole to do on social media with his sexuality because people kept pressuring him. But he poops like everybody else. He cries like everybody else. He's capable of hurting someone, of being hurt. He's not this other being. He doesn't just exist in your computer screen or phone. He's a person. As is any person who you might find beautiful. And, you know, the only people who don't want love or connections are sociopaths. Yeah, probably. You know? it, and we train ourselves to be independent, and that's wonderful. But independent just means you can count on yourself. It mm-hmm. means you don't necessarily need people to fulfill you, but people can help. The love of another person can help bolster you. It can be a wonderful support system, a, a, a safety net for when you fall. Um, and I think that's sort of all Alan wants. And he eventually gets it with Arnold. Wait a minute. Yes, dear. Where'd you come from? This is like so not where you were in those years when you said you weren't a relationship person. It's like wonderful to hear and see. It's poetic. You're going to hate it. A lot of this came in the last three months. Okay. Good. Because you experienced it. Yeah. Kind of still am, but it's, but I understand the, the complications of having those emotions in this moment, because who the fuck knows what's going to happen in the upcoming months? Uh, I didn't know uh, for very long. I haven't known him for very long. And yet here we stand and I've said some very eloquent, beautiful things. All right, mother, let's wrap this shit up. Yeah. Um, there was a revival of Torch Song Trilogy. First of all, it had a movie version in 1988 starring Harvey Firestein. Matthew Broderick came back to play Alan this time. Ah. And Anne Bancroft played the mother. Was he pretty enough to be Alan? Yeah. I mean, he's pretty. He, he looked like the same little old man he plays today, you know? I mean, I think Matthew Broderick was very cute up until about 2002. He but, was, but he was slouchy. Yes, he's, he's a little more... He had more fluffy hair. Mm. They made him more... Yeah, I don't know. They made him more kind of like uh, effeminate boy model. But, you know, he's not like all American beautiful in the movie, but he's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie's not very good to begin with. Uh, Harvey Firestein, as we mentioned uh, earlier, has had a very long career as a writer, book writer mostly. He hasn't had as much success in plays. He had his follow up play to this was Safe Sex, which came after Lacage. Which was, you know, so having Torch Song and Collage back-to-back was, you know, super huge. And then he does this play, Safe Sex, which closes in a week on Broadway. Oops. Yeah. And then he doesn't really come back to Broadway until Hairspray. He does movies and TV. And uh, after Hairspray, he comes back as a book writer. He does uh, Kinky Boots and Newsies and does another musical called Cater Affair, which nobody liked. Did a play called Casa Valentina, which we saw mm-hmm. uh, with Mayor Winningham, which was actually pretty solid. And uh, did updates for Funny Girl, which was whatever. 
Uh, Torch Song Trilogy had a revival in 2017 starring Michael Yuri, which then transferred to Broadway in 2018. They called it Torch Song because they trimmed it down by about an hour and got, brought it down to two acts. So wow. act, act one was International Stud and Fugue in a Nursery. Act two was Widows and Children was First. Was it compromised? Was it not as good? Um, No, it was still very good. It... Uh, it was there was it's not just that things were cut there were some things tweaked some things added to kind of cover patches did he do that he, he did it yes uh-huh. he did it uh i th- i personally think that the act that suffered the most from it was fugue in a nursery which was in my opinion also the weakest of the three to begin with but oh, so i was right yeah well i think widows and children is a 10 out of 10 i think international stud is about a 9 out of 10 and i think fugue is an 8 out of 10 so like fugue is not bad right a play being eight out of ten in general, I think, is a, is a very successful evening. I just think it, it it's not it doesn't help that Fugue is slapdash in the middle of a nine and a ten. If it were eight, nine, ten, it would be right. a wonderful wonderful evening. But uh, I found Fugue in Torch Song to be the weakest, and also Michael Yuri is very pretty and and toned, and he's a little more clownish than Harvey Firestein. So it just it felt a little bit like a trained wonderful actor putting mm. on someone else's skin, which is what acting is. Which, I don't know, there was a lack of naturalism about yeah, it yeah, all. Yeah. But it was still good. Mer- Mercedes Rule played the mom, and she was amazing. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, it won Best Play in 1983, opposite Plenty by David Hare. And I believe the other ones were uh, As Is, uh, Night Mother by uh, Marsha Norman, mm. and Angels Fall, Lanford Wilson's Angels Fall. Those were the That's three. That's stiff competition. It, Marsha Norman won the Pulitzer for uh, Night Mother. David Hare's Plenty is considered his best work. And Lanford Wilson's a great playwright. So sti- that's a good year for plays. Yeah. Usually, Mama, uh, we started playing a game at the end of this that I'm not going to ask you to play because I wouldn't expect you to know this. So I'm going to do this. It's two. And they're bo- both basically Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. But first is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine Tesori. And the other one is called Six Degrees of Sally Murphy. Okay. So with... Torch Song Trilogy. And we're going to stick with the Broadway company. I'm allowed to do Six Degrees of, of Janine Tesori and then Six Degrees of Sally Murphy. And I can only stick to original companies, but I can also include production teams. So, the original Torch Song Trilogy starred and was written by Harvey Firestein. Harvey Firestein. You know what? I'm, I'm, I take that back. I'm going to say Matthew Broderick was in the off-Broadway production and it's recorded at Lincoln Center Library. Matthew Broderick did the revival of How to, Succeed, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying in 1995 with vocal and dance arrangements by Janine Tesori. That wasn't even six degrees. It wasn't. <laughs> it was two. Sally Murphy! Harvey Firestein replaced Alfred Molina in that Fiddler on the Roof revival in 2004. And who is Seidel? Sally Murphy. Oh my goodness. That's not even six! So... I look forward to seeing how I keep making this work for every future episode. It's sort of like your version of Wordle, right? Kinda. Yeah. I don't know. I just keep on wanting to make Sally Murphy a huge star. And if I say her name enough times, she <laughs> will be. We got to get that bitch back to Broadway and doing her soprano voice again. Um, we close out every show with a Broadway diva. There are no big Broadway female Broadway singers in Torch Song Trilogy or who are in Torch Song. So I'm trying to think. Who could be connected to this? I don't know. Who's like a big uh, Torch Song singer? Hmm. The one that we saw was not at all. You know what we're going to do? What? So I was thinking like Helen Morgan with Bill from Showboat, but I don't know if there's a professional recording of Helen Morgan. 
what we're going to do is we're going to do Lonette McKee singing Bill, one of the great musical theater torch songs with her smoky, smoky voice. And Lonette McKee would have been a great torch song singer in Torch Song Trilogy back in the 80s. So that's it. Uh, Join us next week for I don't know what because we're doing this whole thing out of order. Uh, That's it. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Say bye, Mama. Bye, Mama. Uh, Is there any place you want people to find you? Online, social media, anything like that? No, just, I mean. You write. I do write. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny Tickton Coplick. You can. Um, Would you accept a Facebook from someone? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, same. And um, if you want to look at my website, you know, for other stuff, it's dtkresources.com. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, give us a nice five star rating. We're legit now. Thank you, uh, Broadway Podcast Network. And yeah, we'll see you next week for. <laughs> Take it away, Lonette. Bye. What a long game, Bill, who's not the type at all. You'd meet him on the street and never notice him. His form and face, his manly grace, are not the kind that you would find in a statue. And I can't explain Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.